1997, ten weeks after Louise Woodward started her new job as a nanny for the Epen family, eight-month-old baby Matthew died in her care. The jury will find her guilty, only for the judge to overturn the verdict. Can the re-examination of the details of the case 25 years later offer us further insight into whether or not Louise Woodward was innocent? This is the case of Matthew Epen. Detective Unit, today you're not dealing with my wet hair, however, you're dealing with a very sweaty face. We are going through the last wave of the heat wave here in London, which is less than 30 degrees, but uh, listen, Europeans just can't compete. Unfortunately, as people from the UK that watch me know, most places don't have an aircon, and I don't even have a fan, and even if I were to have a fan and sit in front of this camera, you would hear the fan, you hear the scaffolding, you hear everything on this bloody mic. Speaking of mics, before I dive into what is probably the most saddening case that I have covered on this channel, some good news, I guess. Your homegirl just got monetized and I just wanted to thank everybody for 1,000 subscribers, for anybody who has shared anything, any deep dive that I have done or not a deep dive and like a shorter video, which is still longer than most people have done on any YouTube channel. I am going through the process of like applying for monetization, so it still has to be approved. So unless this channel is literally taken down, in which case you would know, we are on, we are on. And keep sharing, keep sharing the deep dives, keep sharing the videos, keep sharing anything that you like from this channel or keep re-watching it because finally, then that will actually bring me some income on the side. As most of you know, I have a full-time job, so I'm doing this literally as I have just shut my laptop down. I have set up the camera in order to do this, hence uh, why I haven't even had time to rinse off the sweat off of my face. Yes, there is a mirror here. Super professional. But what monetization finally allows me to do is actually make out of this channel what I want if I were to earn any extra money, which would be having a segment where I bring the writers of, you know, the books in the back, like all of the true crime books that I have read, which have been quite some, like, on this channel, you know, I really want to bring the Finding Susie author on the channel, or just the authors for any other books that I read. I would really like to have discussion with them because they are the ones behind so much research. They are the ones that talk to the families, they are the ones that talk to people. And again, there's a gap there in the market when it comes to true crime YouTube that just hasn't been explored. And I would really love to chat with writers. You know, I studied journalism after all. That being said, all of the thank yous going out to you this brings us to a trigger warning of the day, because as I mentioned, this case is probably one of the heaviest that I have covered, because it includes the death of the child. And it includes death of the child in the 90s. I will be playing, should the copyright allow, some segments from the trials, and just interviews in general, and the tone deafness is obvious. So if the topics of child death, if the topics of anything to do with a potential murder of a child you find triggering and if you on top of that find the language about child death the trials about such topics triggering just click out of this one there's plenty of other videos 
on this channel that do not involve deaths of children, this one will trigger you. Like, this trial, the segments that I have found online that I will play, have actually destroyed a part of my soul. This case, for the whole week, has been destroying me, like, eating me alive. And something else, as I always end videos with, asking you for your opinion, Again, just saying that by the end of it, you might change yours. Like, my opinion on this case has been changing throughout this whole week as I was researching it. And that is why I really needed your help. Like, I knew the case was controversial, because again, like so many other cases, it popped into my recommended, because it was another 60 minute, 60 minutes, the Australian ABC program that re-examines the shows after X amount of years, in this case 25 years. So of course I clicked on it and I knew this is gonna be a controversial case, but I just didn't know how much it will affect me and make me like constantly rethink all of my biases. And you know, I like to put us all through rethinking all our own biases. I do it in most of my videos, especially the deep dives. That being said, we are starting off with the background, and we are gonna start off with the background of Matthew Eben himself. The very limited information that we know of Matthew is based off of the impact statement that his mom read out in court in 1997 when the verdict would be announced. Matthew's dad, Sunil, is Indian, however, he was raised in Chicago and he worked as a pediatrician, whereas Deborah was born and raised in the Boston area, so they eventually ended up settling for this middle-class suburb. And they chose it, like so many parents do, with the basis of that being a really safe place to raise their children. And they did plan to have multiple children, even before Matthew came along. So, at the time of this case, there would be Matthew and there would be his older brother, Brendan. So, Brendan was born in 1994, and then the family will have two other kids after Matthew's passing. As Sunil and Deborah, the parents ended up having really busy lifestyles. Deborah was an ophthalmologist and Sunil, as I mentioned, was a pediatrician. So the two of them were working, trying to make the most out of their days to bring the most money towards the family. They started looking to hire nannies. So before Louise Woodward, they would have a couple of nannies that worked for them free, eventually, from what I have seen, and then Louise would be the fourth nanny in the household, within a short space of time. So, that brings me to something that I couldn't find in this case. I couldn't find anything on the other nannies. I have not seen that they have testified in court towards, like, the dynamic in the family, the dynamic in the household, what the parents were like towards Matthew and also why they were hired and then let go of. And also, that can mean that they never spoke badly of the family. That might mean that this is why they haven't actually testified in court. So, we don't know why they were hired, why there was a short span that they have worked for the family, but also it might mean something completely innocent, that this is how the agencies were hiring them, they decided it's not for them, you know, taking care of such two small children, and then they decided to move. From the impact statement that Deborah, Matthew's mom, gave, this is how she describes the moment that Matthew entered their life. 
On May the 24th, 1996, we gave birth to a healthy baby boy. We named him Matthew, gift from God. Matthew was a beautiful baby with black silky hair and rich chocolate eyes. He was a real butterball. He made his needs known and when they were met, he was happy again. A real smiling baby. By all accounts, his older brother, Brandon, was already spoiling him. Even though Brandon, at this point, when Matthew was born, was still a baby himself. He was only two years old. The mom said in the impact statement that Matthew was the great object of the affection of his then two-year-old brother, Brandon, who would proudly announce, Brandon makes baby Matthew feel better as he would give Mattie anything, like from a toy to a blanket or just like kiss him on the cheek as he would gently play with his baby brother. At this point in time, Deborah would say that the family felt safe and secure. They have finished medical schools, they have been a couple of years in their jobs, and they started having a family. They had Brendan and Matthew already, and they kind of got into a routine. So she would say only one week before something was to happen to Matthew, before February the 4th of 1997, Sunil and her were just saying how blessed they were. And they dreamt of Matthew's future, of Matthew and Brandon always playing together, whether it was roughhousing or just playing ball. And Brandon would joke, you better be nice to your brother. And when it came to his older brother, they would joke with Brandon that he better be nice to his brother because Matthew was going to become a lot bigger than him. Deborah would say they were so beautifully different, like Tigger and Winnie the Pooh. We loved our family and wouldn't change a thing. But on February the 4th, 1997, all our hopes and dreams were torn apart. Our Mattie had been hurt. We soon learned our baby Matthew was dying. We couldn't believe it. It was all inconceivable, and it was beyond us to comprehend that our Matty was dying because someone we trusted had hurt him. To understand what happened to Matthew, we need to speak about the person that will be accused of murdering him, and a few details on her background that we know of. This would be Louise Woodward. Louise was born in Elton. This is a city in Cheshire that only has a population of less than 4,000 people. And she was living there up until she was 18 years old. And this is when she would decide to travel to Boston that has about 700,000 people. So a huge shock, a huge cultural shock to begin with, going from the UK to the US. And also just a huge shock in terms of like the city change, change of everything. She has done this, she has made this decision because she had just finished A-levels here and decided to kind of have at least one gap year to like travel, to find a job, to sustain herself, and also to like explore the world before coming back and deciding what she actually wants to do. Like does she want to study? Does she want to go into employment? So that's what I gathered from Louise's history. And this is when she would register herself with an agency who then found her employment as an au pair. And this is when she would register with an agency who would then find her a job as an au pair. 
From the resources that I have found, Louise had left for her gap year shortly after finishing A-levels in 1996, so she planned this out and decided to leave in July. So Ethan family wouldn't be the first family that she was placed with. She was placed with another family, we don't know their details, I just found that they were in Manchester by the sea, which is about like 30 minutes from the center of Boston. And this would be through the agency that was basically just placing these nannies with the families in the Boston area. She would relocate to that area and begin working. However, it kind of became obvious to this family that she was quite inexperienced and she started struggling. So the family, the first family that she was placed with started imposing rules. From what I've seen, this would just be a curfew. So Louise had to be at home by about 11 p.m. But Louise was on her gap year, so she, justifiably so maybe, wanted to explore the city as well. She, you know, traveled to Boston after all, after having lived in a small city in Cheshire most of her life. I don't actually know. You know, I'm just trying to embellish the story and, like, portray it in such a way for you to understand and, like, to understand Louise's perspective of the story as well, in order for this to be the most unbiased account of events as possible. She obviously had a gap year, wanted to go abroad and experience the lifestyle, make friends. So she wanted to experience the nightlife. So she wanted to experience the nightlife of Boston as well and started breaking that rule. So she would kind of break the curfew and suddenly started coming home late. Due to this rule of 11 p.m. curfew, Louise decided to leave. Now, this is what I have read in multiple sources, that she decided to leave, that this family wouldn't be the one, like, firing her, getting rid of her, there was no bad blood there. And also something to note here, as you go along, we don't hear from this family. From what I have seen, I haven't seen the whole trial proceedings, so maybe I am wrong here and I haven't seen, like, any PDFs, any documentation on it. But from what I have seen, the family never testified. I don't think they were ever questioned as to Louise's character, what she was actually like with the kids, were there any other issues beyond the curfew. We don't know that side. We just know that she had left this family and soon enough went back to the agency because she still needed a job. And this is when, in November of 1996, she would be placed with the Epens. In short, Louise would only be with the Ethan family between November and February. And in January of 1997, the family would come up with the rules that she would have to live by and said that her work had to improve or else. This introduction of rules would happen only four days before something happened to Matthew. On January the 30th, 1997, they started being concerned, just like the last family that Louise was with, about her late nights out. So they wrote up a written list of what is expected out of her, with the primary goal being for her to go to bed on time in order to ensure the safety and well-being of Brandon and Matthew. Four days later, Matthew stopped breathing, and Louise would be the one behind the phone call to the ambulance. So... To bring this into the long of the story, let us discuss the period of time when Louise was with Evans, so between November and the 4th of February. 
At first, it seemed like there were no issues. As I mentioned, the family only sort of drew up this list end of January that year. So the relationship between Louise and the family was good. And from the court proceedings, it makes me believe that Louise's mom also came to Boston just for a visit and that she, like, stayed with the family. She saw that whole relationship going on and she didn't see anything really alarming. She was doing very well. She was very happy. Did anybody uh, discuss with you any problems your daughter was having? However, the curfew was always sort of recommended by the Ethans as well, because the kids were so young. The curfew for Louise, that is, in order for her to then the next day be able to still get up and take care of the children. So, at first, Louise protested it. And on the trial basis, you know, it was her first month, the Ethans decided that they're not going to impose any curfew. Basically, just like, let's see how it goes for the first month, let's see if you need it. However, by the end of November, by the end of that first month, it seemed like the relationship went south. The family started reporting that Louise wasn't really integrating with them, that she would just barely be at home during the evenings, and she would frequently just take trains to Boston to meet up with her friends and just go out. She enjoyed a social life, including drinking. So their main concern was, again, will she be up in time tomorrow when we are going to work to take care of the kids? And also, from what Deborah, the mom, said in trial, it seemed like they tried to make her feel welcome, like they wanted to, to stay, like, come, stay, sleep over, and the next morning you're already here. However, Louise would choose to go out, sleep elsewhere, and then, you know, possibly drink. And there was always concerns whether or not Louise will be up and running for the next morning. During the first month, how many evenings was she home with you? Uh, during the first month, despite the fact that she wanted to be part of a family, she only stayed home one night. As December approached, specifically mid-December, were you having any uh, problems with Louise Woodward concerning her child care habits? Um, the problems that started coming out within the first month were that she just could not be ready in the morning. She was not up on time. She wasn't ready to take the kids. Um, she started having later and later nights. Um, Mid-December, one night she stayed out till 1.30 that I knew of, and uh, I was very concerned. And that same week, she was late in the morning at least three times. The main problems that we had were her late nights, her inability to be ready in the morning, and leaving the children unattended and doing personal things when she should be taking care of the children. Eventually, by the end of the first month, the family was just questioning her commitment. Like, she would, according to Deborah, according to Matthew's mom, not be able to be ready in the mornings when they needed her, which would delay, obviously, care of the children, would delay the two of them, the parents getting into work. She was having later and later nights, sometimes staying up until 1.30 a.m., and the parents were just constantly anxious about whether or not she would be late. On the contrary, however, and to offer the most unbiased account of the events, there's the other side of that coin. Louise's mom would testify in court, saying that nobody ever complained about Louise when she was actually staying in the Epen household during those couple of months that Louise was there. 
And Louise herself would say that this had never affected her work, that she was still having a playmate-believe, that she was still having a really healthy relationship with both Matthew and Brendan, that Matthew especially liked to sing and dance, that she used to read to him, that this was just a healthy, nurturing, au pair and a child kind of relationship. Louise insisted that despite differences with the parents, she was devoted to the children. We did a lot of make-believe. Um, you know, we danced to music. Um, he, he liked to sing. He sang a lot. Um, Brendan liked, liked to read, too. We used to read with Matthew. I wrote Matthew would look at the pictures. And, um, we did all sorts of things. Uh, uh, Manny was really a placid baby. So, he, you know, he'd laugh along if, if, if we were being active. If we were dancing, I mean, I used to hold him and dance with, um, with Brandon. We know now that the family already, by the end of the first month, has been having some issues and they're now sort of looking at Louise and her behavior more closely. I couldn't find that they imposed anything onto her as the other family did in terms of curfew or anything like that until what I named the deal breaker, which came two days from what I gathered from the court proceedings before January the 30th. So before they actually made up a list and were like, okay, this needs to change or, you know, you're gonna need to find another job. What happened, apparently, on January the 28th, if I have my dates right, and this is just from the dad's testimony in court. Matthew's dad, Sunil, said that he came home around 5 o'clock, and he saw Brendan watching TV, and Matthew was in another room, and he just thought, like, well, where is their nanny? Where is Louise? And he called out to her, and it happened that Louise was in the basement. So... You know, after she climbed up from the basement, he basically kind of faced her, saying, like, you can't just leave kids, especially Matthew, by yourself. Can you describe what happened for the ladies and gentlemen of the jury when you came home at 5 o'clock that day? Sure. Uh, I came home, and uh, when I opened the door, I found Brendan was in our family room, which is immediately on the left as we walk in. He was watching watching TV, and I didn't see Matthew and Louise. Uh, I just presumed they had gone upstairs to change his diaper or something. And I continued on after I spoke to Brendan for a little while and asked him how his day was. Uh, went back into the kitchen and I found Matthew in the dining room lying alone. In the meantime, I heard some noise downstairs in the basement. So I uh, just hung out there until about five minutes exactly by the clock was done. And I, I wanted to wait longer, but I was just getting more and more angry. And I, I uh, yelled downstairs for her to come up. Um, and at that time, did you have a discussion with her? I did. I said, uh, I, I was really angry, and I said I found this behavior to be completely unacceptable, uh, that she just cannot leave the kids alone uh, for any period of time like that, uh, and that she was down there for a long time. And when she came upstairs, she looked me right in the eye and said that, you know, she just went downstairs less than a minute. And right then she said, you know, I'm real, she told me that she was very upset, and that she can't talk about it right now, that she was going to start crying. And I said, you know, it's okay to cry. That would be okay. But she said, I, I can't talk about it right now. And I said, all right. So she went back downstairs for a little while and came back up. And uh, I said, do you want to talk about this now? And she says, well, I have someplace to go. 
I said, Louise, this is really important. I mean, is there something you're not understanding about what's going on here? Louise's version of this event is that she just was emptying the dishwasher and then went into the basement to put the laundry from the washing machine into the dryer, that she didn't stay there for anything else. It was just a matter of minutes. And uh, she said, uh, you know, I was only down there for a minute and you're really blowing this way out of proportion and uh, I feel like you're yelling at me about this. And I said, this is really important. This is the essence of why you're here, is to keep the kids safe. However, this had really triggered the dad, and then obviously he spoke with Deborah, and they both agreed that this was the final straw. Two days later, they imposed a curfew on Louise, and she happens to have agreed to it. She wanted to stay, she obviously wanted to keep this job. Deborah had told her that either she's staying or she's going, that they can't keep on like this. And what this means is that on the day of Matthew's injury, Louise might have been having serious concerns that she might still get fired. Whether or not she keeps up with the list that they have given her to improve, whether or not she keeps up with the curfew, this might have still been a concern of hers at that point. I said, you know, before we waste time on each thing, Either you're staying or you're going. You know, we just, we have to work this out one way or the other because we can't keep going on like this. Did she respond to that? She seemed nervous and concerned that we were going to fire her. This brings us to February the 4th, 1997. The short of it was that at 3.45 p.m., Louise Woodward would end up calling 911. She would tell the operator that baby Matthew was barely breathing. She thought he might have choked on his own vomit after being put down for a nap. I will play, I know this is a trigger for somebody, I will play a 911 call right now. It's only a couple of seconds that I could find online. Again, if it's allowed, like if YouTube doesn't completely take it out. So I would say just, you know, do the skip of like 15 to 30 seconds if you don't want to listen to it. She sounds calm. On the call, she sounds calm and collected, and the operator asks her, is he breathing? And she says, barely. So what had happened? What is the long of it that had happened? according to the statement that she will give to the police, and then, again, according to some court recordings that I will play. So, October... So, February the 4th starts off like just any other normal day. The parents go to their work, and Louise reported that shortly after she woke up Matthew, she noticed that he was kind of whiny. He was grouchy. He wasn't really feeling like he was in the mood that day. So, Louise assumes that Matthew is tired, and it kind of strikes her as odd, because he had only, at that point, been up for about two hours. However, it seems like his mood had changed. So, she doesn't think anything of it. It's a baby, it's a small child, only a couple of months old. But later in the afternoon, she decides, you know, let's give him a bath. Again, this, from the sounds of it, wasn't anything out of the ordinary. So, it, it seems like this is just a regular occurrence, like every day, this is what she would do. 
After the bath, Louise put Matthew back in his crib for a nap, for an afternoon nap. And this is when, you know, she presumably left the room, maybe she stayed in, we don't really know why, we don't really know what had happened. However, at 3.15 p.m., she goes back to look into the crib and check up on Matthew. And immediately upon doing that, she notices that Matthew is struggling to breathe. So, what she does is she rushes him downstairs to the dining room. And this is where Louise would try to perform CPR. Some accounts will say she didn't. And in panic, her first instinct was to try to page Sunny, try to alert the parents, but she had no luck. And this is when, instead, at 3.45 p.m., she will make that phone call to 911. I have a transcript of some of that call, like the rest of it, the one that I couldn't find in the audio form. Louise, on the phone call, first said, help, there's a baby, he's barely breathing. I think he choked on his vomit. I think he choked on his vomit. The operator asks, okay, can you turn him on his back? Louise says, help. He's not breathing. He's barely breathing. He's not focusing with his eyes. The operator asks, is he breathing or not breathing? To which Louise responds, barely. So the operator says, just make sure he keeps breathing there, madam. Louise says, oh my god, he's stopped breathing again. He's making, oh my god. That will be the call to 911 operator. And obviously, the ambulance will be rushed to the Eben household. However, something to note here that would really be taken apart in the courtroom is that 911 wasn't her first call. According to what Deborah, the mom, would say in the courtroom, she paged Sunny first, then she tried to call Deborah, the mom, and then she called 911. And the mom would say about that phone call to Deborah that it came through at four. So this is already when 911 was alerted and when the hospital was on their way. And she confirmed during that phone call to Deborah that she didn't call 911 right away, that she didn't do abdominal thrusts like the parents taught her to do in any cases of emergency. They kind of showed her how to do CPR, that she might have tried giving him breaths, but that he sounded gurgly. He sounded funny to her. For Deborah Epen, it was an uneventful day until a call from Louise at four o'clock in the afternoon. What did she say to you at that time? She said, it's Matthew. I think he's choked on his vomit. Did you have further conversation with her that time about Matthew? And I said, did you do the abdominal thrust and the, and the back thrust like we talked about? And she said, no. She said he was breathing funny. And I said, did you give him breaths? And she said, I tried, but he sounded gurgly. I said, did you call 911 right away? And she said, no, I paged Sonny three times, and then you. With the paramedics making it to the scene, they will find the eight-month-old baby Matthew lying on the dining room floor. He was still responsive. However, the description is that he was gasping for air at this point, and it seemed like his whole little body was just jerking. The paramedics rush to stabilize him, and this is when Louise would make that 4 p.m. call to Deborah, finally reaching out to the mom of Matthews and letting her know what was happening. So Deborah and Sunil, the parents, rush 
to meet Matthew at Boston Children's Hospital. Immediately as she made it to the hospital, Deborah asked to examine Matthew's eyes, and she was an ophthalmologist, so she was obviously granted permission. So she noticed immediately, looking into his eyes, that he was bleeding behind his retinas. This would mean, at this point, that Matthew had fallen into a coma, and the doctors were trying to figure out why he also had a two-and-a-half-inch crack in the back of his skull. This cut and then bleeding from behind the retinas made the doctors conclude that Matthew had what is known as subdural hematoma, which is bleeding on or surrounding the brain. So, beyond that, he also had some hemorrhaging on his neck and the spinal cord. So, the doctors concluded that what had happened to Matthew was a shaken baby syndrome. So, the diagnosis was that Matthew might have been shaken or involved in a traumatic brain injury. And that is why his brain was not responsive, and this is why he had fallen into a coma. From the emergency room now, as the doctors started operating on Matthew, they would start operating on him at about 5.30 p.m. that afternoon, the mom called Louise. So, she's trying to find out more about what happened, because this just didn't make sense to them. They have left for work normally that morning, nothing was wrong with Matthew, and now he's suddenly hospitalized, undergoing operation, and obviously when she saw his eyes, when she saw, like, the bleeding behind the retinas, she knew that this was quite serious for such a small child, especially. Louise would, on this call, kind of not really answer Deborah's questions. When Deborah asked her, did you leave him in the chair? Did he fall down the stairs? She was just saying no to every single question. And when finally asked, did you shake him? Louise said yes, when he wasn't breathing normally. I asked, did he fall down the stairs? No. Did he fall in the tub? No. Did, he, did you leave him in the high chair? No, I didn't use the high chair all day. You know, I was looking for any possible accident or explanation. And at the end, I said, did you shake him? And she said, yes, when he wasn't breathing normally. While in the hospital, still undergoing examination, doctors would also notice that Matthew had a fractured wrist, which had seemingly been left untreated for a few weeks. Another pediatrician would then diagnose Matthew with retinal hemorrhages, and this would have been considered a characteristic of shaken baby syndrome. This is when the family would finally have diagnosis, as I mentioned, and this would give the basis for the trial. While Matthew is being treated for his injuries, so this is now sort of afternoon of February the 4th, Louise was questioned about the care of the baby. What had happened is that at around 7 p.m., Sergeant Bill Byrne would arrive at Stephen's household in order to question Louise. This interview was never taped. It was never recorded. However, it was reported, and it will be mentioned in trial. I have watched the testimony of the sergeant in question, how Louise seemed inexperienced, how she was working with the family in return for leaving board, and she told the sergeant, apparently, that Matthew was 
irritable. The whole morning he was just cranky and upset. And Bill would then report, you know, he would write up the statement later, how Louise stated that this was a major cause of frustration. Matthew's behavior was a major cause of frustration for her. According to the sergeant, Louise would tell him about how Matthew was cranky and fussy. She told him about the bath that she put Matthew through, and that before the bath, she carried Matthew into the bedroom. She tossed him on the bed, and she apparently demonstrated this to the officer, how she actually tossed Matthew onto the bed, made a movement of tossing something. Then she went into the bathroom and laid a towel on the floor while preparing the bath. Again, she would explain to the sergeant, according to his own words, how she dropped Matthew on the towel, demonstrating it as she was explaining this, saying that she dropped him and made a movement with her hands. And by her own words, she tossed him on the bed. And did you ask her to demonstrate for you what she meant by tossed? I did. And what did she do and say at that point? She said, tossed, you know, tossed, and with her hands she made a, a, a forward movement as if tossing something. Now, did she indicate for you what she did after she tossed Matthew on the bed? She said that she went into the bathroom area um, to draw the bath and that she laid a towel on the floor. Now, did she indicate at that point after she laid the towel on the floor, what she did with regard to Matthew. She said that she returned and got Matthew and brought him into the bathroom area. She told me that she dropped him on the towel, which was on the floor. Did you ask her to demonstrate for you how she dropped Matthew on the towel that was on the floor? I did. And what did she do and say at that point in response to your question? She said, I, I dropped him. I I dropped him, and again with her hands, she made a movement. She then continued, according to the sergeant, saying that she brought Matthew into the bathroom, she dropped him onto the towel, demonstrating how she dropped him, saying that she did, and making a movement with her hands. She said she was angry and frustrated because Matthew was crying, that he had been cranky all day, and that she may have been a bit rough with him. This interview, that yet again, I cannot emphasize this enough, had not been taped with the technology existing at the time and with this being the child that is now in the operating room, a small child, couple of months old, nobody thought, let's tape this interview. It only lasted for about 20 minutes. And then the police decided to leave. However, in order for Louise not to flee the country, I guess they have taken away her passport. The morning after, however, Louise will be arrested. And she will be arrested for assault. That is based off of what they have heard from the hospital and also based off of Louise apparently telling them that she had tossed Matthew onto the bed and then onto the bathroom floor. She would be held until her trial at Framingham Prison. This would be a maximum security jail and her bail was at the time set at $100,000. However, this would completely change on 9th of February 1997, when at 10.57 a.m. Matthew would pass away in his dad's arms. This would be when Louise would start facing a murder charge. She was locked up in the prison and she was denied bail. 
In the hospital, the family was grieving. This, again, is from the impact statement that Deborah would read out in court, saying, Mattie died in our arms, surrounded by family, including his loving two-year-old brother, Brendan. Despite his tubes and IVs and surgical dressing covering his head, he looked to me like a little prince. Since that day, our lives are completely altered. Our hearts are heavy every day with the most excruciating pain. How can we make sense of any of this? How can we go on? Can we be happy again? She didn't look scary to me. She didn't seem like a child abuser or a monster or a murderer. We had no idea she would harm our kids. I am scared now when I hear an ambulance. I have nightmares. I'm afraid to answer the phone or door. We are not safe. The unthinkable has happened and now anything can happen. My assumptions about life are now my goals. That my children will be safe, my marriage intact, and our lives one day happy again. I cannot end without speaking for Brendan, who is so upset by someone he cared for. He has so many questions. How come baby Matthew died? What is death? Where is heaven? And I have no answers. Louise will be charged with first-degree murder, and her trial will begin in October that year, in October 1997. At the beginning of the trial, the defense would request from the judge to restrict the jury to only three verdicts. One would be first-degree murder, second one second-degree, or acquittal just set her free. The prosecution objected to the request because they felt that the jury should have the option to consider manslaughter as the offense, and the judge granted defense their request. So the jury was not to consider the option of the manslaughter. So they were either to charge her with murder, whether it was in first or second degree, or acquit her. This is the beginning of the trial. It's going to change from that point on. So, for the short of it, for the nutshell of the trial, the prosecution is going to try to prove that the injury happened that day in Louise's hands. Matthew died in her care due to something that she had done. And the defense would state that the injuries happened a while ago. It couldn't have been her, implying it could have been parents, it could have been the previous nannies that worked for the even family, The job of the defense is to simply put reasonable doubt into juries' minds. And they knew the prosecution will work with what is known as the shaken baby syndrome, based off of the hospital diagnosis after they had examined Matthew and after they had operated on his injuries. So, we have to speak a bit about shaken baby syndrome. What is it? It is a severe brain injury that results from forcefully shaking an infant or a toddler. This happens because of baby's muscles, especially the neck muscles, being really weak and unable to support their heads. So, shaking a baby can allegedly cause serious brain injuries. Shaken baby syndrome usually occurs when a parent or a caregiver, somebody who has a child in their hands at that moment in time, severely shakes them due to usually frustration or anger. And it's usually when the baby is crying and somebody, the caregiver, the parent, wants them to stop crying. The symptoms of it usually include vomiting, seizures, pale skin, breathing problems, difficulty staying awake, and just irritability. 
And at this point, the term shaken. And what's important here, at least in my mind, is that the term was actually coined in 1970s, kind of early 1970s, if I remember right, like 72, by a British pediatric neurosurgeon called Dr. Norman Guthelch. And he would say that babies were showing a pattern of injuries after being violently shaken. Why I mention this is because SBS or shaken baby syndrome, even today, is an extremely controversial topic. Even today, you can't find much research done. There are papers, don't get me wrong, there are papers shared on the EPEN website, there are papers shared everywhere, there is, you know, new sort of write-ups, new literature on the topic. However, you can't do research, and if you need me to spell it out, you can't do research because it will be the most unethical research ever, because you can't shake babies in order to prove your point. But you have to have, you know, the terminology and the history, the brief history of when the term was coined in the back of your head, because the case had happened in the late 90s. So even today, this topic is controversial. However, you can only imagine the hype that was surrounding this type of topic in the hands of an experienced nanny in the late 90s, when this case actually hit the news. So, the scary part about SBS is that you'd usually know of it only when it becomes critical. Because if you remember the symptoms that I have said, I mean, irritability, struggle sleeping, struggle breathing, depending again on how severe it is, you can attribute it to just a toddler being a toddler. Like, yeah, they're gonna be irritable, they will be crying, they might have a bit paler skin that day, you will just attribute it to something completely normal until it becomes critical. So usually SPS typically first presents itself when a child is brought to a hospital or the doctor's office suffering a life-threatening condition, meaning that there is a high rate of dying when it comes to SPS because it's only determined either when the child is brought to the doctor at this point the issue is already severe, or like in Louise's case, when 911 is called. What you will hear about a lot from this point on is something that is a triad. It's really the nutshell of understanding SBS. The triad including bleeding behind the eyes, bleeding on the brain, and brain swelling. The symptomatic triad of bleeding between the brain and the skull, this is what is known as the subdural hematoma, bleeding behind the retinas, which is what Deborah noticed in Matthew's case, and what the doctors did in the end as well, and brain swelling, is both the core of an SBS diagnosis and also the point of departure for the syndrome skeptics. The diagnosis wasn't new. For decades, when doctors saw a child with a particular set of symptoms known as the triad, bleeding behind the eyes, bleeding on the brain, and brain swelling, they would conclude there was only one possible cause, shaking. It seems like we were diagnosing child abuse and shaken baby syndrome uh, often, at least maybe monthly. The skeptics would say that the medical proof that shaking alone can cause these internal head injuries is questionable, when many other things, from infections to malnutrition to falls onto a hard surface, are known to be causes of similar symptoms in infants. Beyond the controversies about how do you scientifically prove it, because you 
really can't, meaning there is nothing scientifically backing SPS, it had also led to multiple legal battles, meaning that lawyers hate it, but also defense lawyers make a load of money out of this. From this interview that I have read done with this British human rights lawyer, Clive Stafford Smith, he had actually said how even the person, the neurologist that coined the term SBS, before dying, had said how he was horrified that this theory of his had been accepted as fact, and how it had sent so many people to prison. There have been studies on the topic of shaken baby syndrome and legal ramifications, so things that I was looking for is, you know, had it led to conviction, like in how many cases. I haven't been able to find, like, the stats that I really wanted, but I found this article from 2015, and it surrounded the study by the Washington Post and journalists from the Medal Justice Project at Northwestern University, and they have published this study from what I have seen in March of 2015. 2015, taking into account 1,800 abuse cases across the country, reaching the resolution since 2001. And they have said for more often than not, in 1,600 cases, the result was a conviction. But the researchers found that in 200 cases, to the remaining cases, charges would be dropped or dismissed. Defendants were acquitted or convictions were overturned. If there are any more recent studies that people have seen, or anything with, like, definitive numbers, like this amount of SPS cases results in conviction versus acquittal, please let me know. Like, let me know in the comments, and, like, I'll dig it and obviously put it in a pinned comment for the community to see. Because SPS is still extremely controversial today, leading to acquittals, but also, as you can imagine, miscarriages of justice. And what will become prevalent here is just how much the prosecution's case will hinge on opinions because of it. So, you have physicians on one end trying to prove it based off of the injuries sustained, and then skeptics or defense teams having enough for reasonable doubt. And speaking of defense, Louise was represented by some of the top defense lawyers at the time, in particular Barry Sheck. So, there were other lawyers on the team, but Barry was of the OJ fame. And the OJ trial just happened about two years, I think it happened in 95, so two years before Louise's one. Barry Sheck was the American lawyer that received national media attention while serving on the team that defended OJ, dubbed the Dream Team. And he helped him win an acquittal in a very highly publicized murder case. What this had meant for Louise's case is that it will be equally controversial and equally publicized and sensationalized, which meant that the prosecution team had to up their game as well. What I'm trying to tell you that from this point on, any clip that I play will make your blood boil. It just whatever was happening in that courtroom was 90s level of tone deaf. It was just to sensationalize everything, it was just to make everything super dramatic, and nobody took any consideration that this is a trial about somebody who's a toddler, and about how his parents 
are in that courtroom, how Louise is in the courtroom, how Louise's parents in the courtroom. It's just nobody cared for like any sort of political correctness, anything but sensationalizing every single aspect of it. So to dive into the trial in a chronological order, the first witness that took the stand for the persecution was the guy called Dr. Kenneth Mendel. He was the first doctor to see Matthew when he arrived into the emergency room. Dr. Kenneth would tell the court that he had seen Matthew and that at this point he was already unresponsive and comatose. He also examined the pupils and immediately noticed the evidence of retinal hemorrhaging, which all indicated signs of severe head trauma to this doctor. However, on the cross-examination by Barry Sheck, this doctor would say that he didn't or couldn't actually attribute anything that he had seen on Matthew, any injuries, to the baby being shaken. During the cross-examination, he was also asked if there was any physical evidence proving that Matthew had been slammed down with the force of dropping a child 15 feet onto concrete. And again, Dr. Mendel said that there was no evidence to prove this. Following the first doctor that examined Matthew, there will be other medical experts for the prosecution testifying towards the shaken baby syndrome. And Barry, the defense lawyer, would cross-examine all of them. Defense arguing that the injuries to Matthew were due to previous head injury. Previously, the injuries on the wrist, the injuries on the skull that were noticed that didn't happen on that day. The doctor that would testify next would be really essential, both for the prosecution and then also for the defense. And I find this testimony probably to be the most confusing one. It was the one by Dr. Gerald Fain. He was the person who performed the autopsy on Matthew. In the written version of his autopsy, Dr. Gerald Fain concluded that the cause of death was because of the blunt head trauma. However, in that initial written report, he had said that he believed this is with the same force as the child being dropped about 15 feet. However, then in court, when he was on the stand, he said that the injuries could have happened from a fall of anywhere between two or three feet, contradicting his own initial autopsy report. Dr. Gerald was also really a better witness for the defense than the prosecution, which prosecution probably expected him to work into their favor, because he highlighted that he didn't believe Matthew was actually shaken before his death. He said, you know, usually looking at somebody with SPS, with a shaken baby syndrome, you would notice some sort of hemorrhaging of the neck muscles and bruises on the baby's arms and ribs where they had been grabbed before shaking them. However, there were none here. But remarkably, there was no mention of shaking. Good afternoon, Dr. Fagan. Good afternoon, Mr. Sheck. Would your findings be consistent with this baby being taken and shaken back and forth finally for about a minute? His head moving uncontrollably back and forth. No. This statement might have eliminated the prosecution's argument that Matthew had been shaken. But both of these witnesses, so both of these doctors, concluded that the injuries to Matthew's body 
were not old and that they had occurred in the hours before the 911 call. The next person on the stand, or I'm just summarizing some of the main witnesses that were on that stand, but one of the people who had testified was the sergeant that questioned Louise. And Bill Byrne would say to the jury and the court that he had an interview with Louise in the hours after the incident. He stressed Louise said that she had been a little rough with the baby because maybe Matthew didn't stop crying, that she had tossed him onto the bed, and that she had later told him she dropped Matthew on the bathroom floor. According to this sergeant, Louise also stated that Matthew may have struck his head on the side of the bathtub, but none of this was recorded by him, so all of it was just later probably noted down in a police report. I don't actually know even if that was the case, and as we know, Louise would be arrested the next day. The prosecution will focus on Louise's character, and this sergeant obviously worked into their favor. The people that worked into the favor of Louise's character that would also take the stand would be Matthew's parents. And also then, once her character was portrayed, there would be the medical professionals to prove for the prosecution and the jury that the shaken baby syndrome is indeed what had happened here. So they would bring forward expert witnesses, including a neurosurgeon, ophthalmologist, radiologist, two pathologists, and an expert in child abuse, all of them testifying how these injuries were intentional. Here, the court would hear about Matthew's two-inch skull fracture on the back of his head, how his brain had swelled through the crack of the back of his skull, and his head, neck, and spinal cord were wrecked by hemorrhaging. Obviously, if you're listening carefully, this means that their experts are going to try to testify how the spinal cord and the neck area had proved hemorrhaging, indeed proving the shaken baby syndrome, because... As you have heard from the autopsy tech, one can't happen without the other. They would present to the jury how Matthew also sustained subarachnoid and subdural bleeding and bilateral retinal hemorrhages, which is bleeding in the back of the inner surface of both eyes. And the court would also hear that those injuries were consistent with shaken baby syndrome and this accompanying violent impact onto the hard surface. They also had a key person, the key witness that would take the stand here, Dr. Patrick Barnes, who was the pediatric radiologist at Stanford University. And he testified that this was the classic model of shaken baby syndrome, dismissing the defense's argument that Matthew's injuries were sustained on an earlier date. According to the 60 Minutes re-examining this evidence, it sounded like complicated science, and I have to agree, because these are sort of like the proceedings from the court that I couldn't really find anywhere in full, and it's probably because they're least sensational. So you sort of find videos here and there of them, like, displaying different graphs, because, again, this was 90s, so it's not like even they're, you know, showcasing screens and displaying it in such a way where it's digestible to people. It's just like displaying these different graphs and like circling the areas of the brain. And I can assume like as a juror sitting through that, if you don't necessarily understand SPS, if you don't necessarily understand the literature behind it, you will end up being confused. 
The other problem with the prosecution and the SBS theory that 60 Minutes had identified is that it was displayed as a hypothetical, because that's the only way they could have displayed it. Imagine what had happened on the morning of. The parents leave, Louise, you know, tries to put Matthew into the bath, but he's cranky, he's been crying, and then she starts shaking him, she drops him on the floor. It's just sort of like giving a hypothetical account of events without actually being able to prove that this is exactly how these injuries were sustained. And this is because this was the only way to present something like shaken baby syndrome. To the point where it has pushed pressure on the child's brainstem such that the child difficulty breathing in, began choking. Okay? okay? Are we still in a hypothetical? Because that's not what happened here. You there? In my opinion, the imaging Doctor, finding... I know what your opinion is. Doctor and Mr. Sheck, when the judge speaks, you will be silent. Yeah, and I should have... I misspoke, and I apologize. Yes, because you weren't there, were you? I were not there, I apologize. And everything, really, the core of the whole persecution and their proceedings in the court was aimed at exerting the most emotion, relying on dramatizing something that's already somebody's worst nightmare. They had lead prosecutor Gary Leone claiming that she severely shook him, demonstrating this in the most tone-deaf way. Like, even people on the stand would always just demonstrate this shaking as if they were there, as if they had witnessed it, as if this is how somebody would shake a child that didn't give anybody any cause to shake them. Possibly slammed him against a hot object, severely shook him until he was neurologically devastated. Actions that anyone would know would cause a little eight-month-old boy the prosecution also tried to deflect anything that would bring down the sensationalist approach. So they had a doctor testify, because when SBS or anything like this, any symptoms of SBS are witnessed by doctors during normal checkups, they are required by the law to report them to the police. And I have found a video of the doctor, so the family doctor that had done checkups on Matthew before this day, confirming he never saw these bruises. Again, indicating maybe they have happened in Louise's care. When you examined Matthew Eppen, you saw no bruises on his arms. That is correct. You saw no bruises on his ribs or his chest. Correct. In fact, you saw no bruises, no marks, anywhere on his body that would indicate that anyone had grabbed Matthew Eppen and shaken him violently back and forth in the manner I'm showing you now for about a minute. There were no bruises. Back to the defense, in order to explain to you how they would then contradict something like SBS, they would put forward the theory that Matthew actually suffered from an undetected head injury, because this doctor testified that it never happened, that they have never witnessed anything, that was inflicted before the day that he was rushed to the hospital. 
they have called this a re-bleed and it happens spontaneously or because of mild jarring. So, in their opinion, this could have happened some three weeks before and then a minor incident on the day, on 4th of February, would have caused re-bleeding on the brain and subsequently caused Matthew's death. It was the defense's case that the initial injury went undetected and that then Louise might have tried to gently shake Matthew, as she had told to the sergeant, and, you know, in that case, Louise isn't lying, it's just that this shaking, gentle shaking, had caused this type of re-bleed on the brain. They have had this forensic neuropathologist called Dr. Jen E. Lestma testifying for this and discounting the prosecution's theory that Louise slammed the head against something like a flat hand surface because there were no injuries to support that. There was no spinal cord or neck damage to justify them saying that Matthew had actually been slammed against the surface. Do you have an opinion, I guess, again, to a reasonable degree of scientific and medical certainty uh, based on the records you've reviewed and your expertise and your review of other cases as to whether or not Matthew Epen on the morning or afternoon of February 4th was shaken back and forth violently for about a minute with his head snapping back and forth. Do you have an opinion? I do. And what is your opinion? Uh, that didn't happen. One essential part of shaking, if shaking is in place, is damage to the neck. Unless you have damage to the cervical system, uh, you cannot produce the effects on the brain. Were there such injuries in this case? There were no injuries uh, in this case. This neuropathologist also testified that they had found a third layer of a membrane that formed on Matthew's dura, next to a blood clot, saying that this was weeks old, that it's in the neighborhood of three to four weeks, so that this was an initial injury, and then the light shaking by Louise that day might have caused this re-bleed, causing Matthew to have the hemorrhaging and to fall into a coma. Going for the defense team were different experts and Barishek also offering the x-rays, offering different opinions as to why the swelling of the brain didn't happen on that day, that it was a re-bleed of an old injury. Defense lawyers would tell the jury about the lack of bruises on Matthew's arms, abdomen, chest, or legs, which would have been there if somebody picked him up and shaken him with force. And the expert witnesses would also testify that there was a lack of fresh bleeding on the brain, indicating that the skull fracture was the older injury. They would also point out to how consistent Louise was, telling the paramedics at the scene that Matthew had been lethargic, had not been eating, and had been screaming a lot. All of those indicating and going into their theory of the symptoms of a previous injury. As the closing statement by Barry Sheck would indicate, Louise Woodward had a colossal misfortune to be with Matthew when this old injury caused him to fall, and the bleeding would not stop. She has been vilified, she has been accused, and now she has been proven innocent. We may never know exactly how this incident occurred, but if this is an old injury, case over. It did not happen on February the 4th, that's the end of the case. 
So the prosecution had their arguments for SPS and how this injury had happened on the day and then they have heard from the defense saying that this was a re-bleed and this was the old injury, which you would think would work the best for the defense and I think it is the best argument that they have had based off of the autopsy report. However, what didn't work for the defense whatsoever was that against her lawyer's advice, Louise said that this is her life and that she wanted to testify. So she took the stand. And on the stand, her character would be taken apart. They tried to portray her, the defense that is, as a sympathetic nanny. She would say that she loved kids and repeatedly she would tell the jury how she played with Matthew. She would describe that she would put a caterpillar toy on him while she went into the bathroom and then placed him into a crib. When she came back after washing her hands, that Matthew was unresponsive. I, I put a toy into his crib that he liked. It was uh, a musical caterpillar that you pull out and it played um, You Are My Sunshine. Um, I put that on him, and I went into the bathroom. And uh, was he lying on his stomach or on his back when you he did that? On his back. And uh, you said you went in to wash your hands. And uh, what happened next? Um, I went. Um, he, he stopped crying when I put him in the crib. So I went back, um, and I looked into the crib, and um, he was unresponsive. He was. Um, he was lying there. Um, his eyes were half closed. He wasn't focusing. Um, um, he was um, gasping for breath. He, he was kind of like um, like this, and uh, and, um, and he looked he looked kind of off color. So he, he didn't look right. When you say off color. Can you tell us what you mean? Kind of, kind of blue, kind of bluish. And was there anything else about him that you said that he didn't look right? Well, that his eyes were half closed, and that he wasn't looking at me. That he was just um, staring up. She then went on to describe that Matthew was unresponsive, lying there, not focusing, and gasping for breath. And when she found him unresponsive, this is when she decided to shake him gently. Matthew, however, was gasping for breath, his eyes half closed, not looking at her. So she panicked, picked him up, and he vomited on her. After he vomited, she put him on the floor and she put a finger in his mouth. Apparently, the parents taught her how to do CPR and this is why she did it. She tilted his head back to give him CPR waving her hand in front of his face. And then she picked him up and went downstairs with him, which is when she paged Sonny and then called the ambulance. Um, I, I thought that he had choked. So um, I lay him down on the floor and I put my finger inside his mouth. We'd, we'd been through CPR, um, Debbie and Sonil and I, because they told me in case anything happened to the kids, if they choked, what I should do. So I felt inside his mouth and I couldn't, there was nothing there. So I, um, I tilted his head back 
Um, and I try to give him CPR. I try I try to breathe for him. I lay him on the bed. And um, I started screaming his name. And I was clapping around his head. And I was trying to see if he could see me. And I was wearing my hand in front of his face. He just he didn't respond. He wasn't responsive at all. He didn't do anything. So I took him. Um, I picked him up and I um, went downstairs with him. And, um, and um, I lay him down on the dining room floor. And I went to the phone and I tried to page Sonny. Sonny. She was then on the stand asked by the defense, did she say that she was rough with him? And she said yes. This, however, even in Louise's interpretation, kind of seemed like it was a leading question by the sergeant. Like, maybe you were a little rough. And then her response was, maybe I wasn't as gentle as I could have been. Uh, were there a lot of questions about what took place uh, while you were getting Matthew ready to take a bath? Yeah, um, Ben kind of focused in on that. Went to the bathroom and he got um, a teddy bear. Well, um, I think down he went out and got a teddy bear. They brought it back and they wanted me to show um, how he put the teddy bear down on the bathroom floor. And Sorry, I put my feet down on the bathroom floor, but using the teddy bear. And did you did you demonstrate that with the teddy bear? Yeah, I did that for him. Now, at any time during that interview, did you tell uh, these police officers that you had tossed Matthew Eben onto the bed? No. Did you tell them that you dropped uh, Matthew on the floor? No. Now, did the the phrase uh, being rough with him? Come on. Yes. And what do you now remember about uh, the phrase of being rough with Matthew during that interview? Well, the officers were talking, and I think Apocrypha said he had a, a nephew, and that he knew how frustrating it would be to hear a baby crying constantly. He knew that that must be very frustrating for me to have to hear that. Um, and Downing agreed with him. Um, they said to me, um, so, so maybe you were just a little rough with him. You know, it must have been frustrating for you. Maybe you were a little rough. And I, I, I said, well, maybe, maybe I wasn't as gentle with him as I could have been because I was trying to get the bath over with fairly quickly because he was tired. So I, t I told them that maybe I wasn't as gentle with him as I could have been. And what I meant was that I was being... Um, kind of quicker than usual. This seemed, even from Louise's reaction on the stand, as if the sergeant kind of directed her leading question, like, maybe you were a little rough, and then her response was, maybe I wasn't as gentle as I could have been, because I was trying to be quicker than usual. During the cross-examination by the prosecution, the tossed on the bed terminology comes up. That's why I was emphasizing it later. Like, she tossed him on the bed, she dropped him on the floor, and how Louise was demonstrating this to the sergeant during the first interrogation. And this is when Louise said that she has said popped. She popped him on the bed. She never demonstrated dropping him, rather placing him on the floor, how she put him down. And this is where we go into the difference between British and American English. 
In British English, it's very common to say pop for all variety of different reasons. It doesn't mean the same thing as in American English. You can say pop by mine, pop over by the pub, just popping to the loo, pop some clothes in my bag. It's more of either going somewhere or moving an object, whereas in the American English, it is usually hitting something by force, like he popped me on the nose, meaning he hit me on the nose, or pop somebody in the eye, meaning that you punch them in the eye. And Louise, on the stand, would explain this difference when it comes to saying popped in British English compared to the American English. So, to summarize her whole testimony, they ask her if she hit him, if she slammed him on the floor, and Louise would respond to both of those with a no. So, just to sum up here, Ms. Woodward, did you ever hit Matthew Eaton? No. Did you see Matthew Eaton's head become injured? No. And did you slam Matthew Eaton? No. And did you do anything to hurt Matthew Eaton? No, I didn't. I have no further questions. If I have managed to insert any of the court recordings, I think we're all having the same reaction, the same guttural reaction to Louise on the stand. That is that it makes you want to die inside. Like her nervous laughter, her reaction on the stand in the most crucial moments of this case is just so confounding. So something to note, because obviously when I first watched this, you know, I would just focus it like, why is she, why is she reacting like this? And then going back to all serious. But when you actually break it down, it does seem like she was prepared to answer most questions. She asks, answers them in the most, like, prepared way, in the most composed way, but she also, at cross-examination, she isn't confused. She immediately knows what to answer, she completely follows her thought process. And that's something to note in this case, she is consistent. She has never said something like, told a different story, said, oh, I didn't actually say that. She's consistent from the get-go, from that phone call to 911, to what she actually says on the stand. So, as much as I died inside just watching and thinking, why did she take the stand? This was a really, really terrible decision. And also, the way that she was reacting with the parents in the room, I was just dying inside. But then, when you actually listen to the story and just how she has a thought process, she follows through with it and she tells it in one consistent way, she doesn't weigh from it, even when, like, taken apart by the prosecution team, it just sounds like it's a story that isn't changing which means that there must be some truth to it. The prosecution will call it half-lies. They will say, mostly in their closing statements, how, you know, she's an actress, which I don't know where they got that from, but as in she was acting on the stand, and how the best lies are always told with, like, half a truth in them. And you can probably see it from that perspective as well, but as... I try to tell this story in the most unbiased way possible. Just something to note. And you let me know what you see from these court proceedings, because I think it's a lot easier to just focus on her behavior, her laughter in the most inappropriate moments, and then think about, like, oh, how does that reflect on the rest of her testimony? 
It also strikes me as something else, though. Like, she was prepared on how to answer questions, but again, you can't fake emotion. And that's probably why she has the nervous laughter in those moments, because they couldn't coach her how to show emotion, so she couldn't. What went into Defense's favor and Louise's favor, somehow, bizarrely, because this is the tone-deaf 90s that we are talking about, and I really, really would like to believe that this wouldn't happen today, is that it felt, especially with the parents taking the stand, that the parents were on trial. Not just parents, her mom. Not just parents, Matthew's mom, Deborah, and just the idea of modern motherhood. Because all of the articles, and there's so, so many articles on this, just judging the mom, backlashing against working mothers who would consign their children to the care of others, who had working hours, who were doctors and, you know, have now studied and decided they can have both career and the kids, and then they have put their children into the arms of the inexperienced nannies. Most of the articles from this period have just been attacking the parents. And even now, when you watch any, like, documentaries, anything on YouTube, on this case, there is still a ton of people in the comments with this kind of opinion. And the bottom line here, the parents were never accused of anything. The doctor that had examined Matthew, the family doctor that had examined Matthew, had never noticed any abuse. He would have had to report it. The parents were not on trial here. Before going to the closing statements and to the verdict, let us, in terms of evidence, recap what the verdict is going to hinge on. So, you would have head scans and prosecution witnesses claiming that Matthew's injuries included a cracked skull, displayed a triad of symptoms consistent with him being shaken on that day, and are consistent with the diagnosis of SPS. We had the expert, Dr. Patrick Barnes, testifying this was the classic model of shaken baby syndrome and dismissing the defense's arguments that the injuries were sustained at an earlier date. I am mentioning Barnes again because he would be the person to actually change his mind in 2011 on SBS and on what he said during Louise's trial. And this is why SBS as a diagnosis, is just so controversial and so hard to prove in court. Barnes would say in 2011 that he would not give the same testimony today, claiming that there was revolution in the understanding of head injuries within the past decade, and that this is due to the advances in MRI brain scanning technology. He said that now it was understood that other medical conditions could affect the baby's brain, and it looked like the findings that used to be attributed to SBS or child abuse can now be just infections or strokes. Because we were biased by the triad representing shaken baby syndrome, we would not believe the other story, is what he said in this interview. But back to the trial before this opinion had changed, the defense, in terms of head scans, would parade the scan, appearing to show an old hairline fracture along Matthew's skull. And they would claim that he had died from an earlier injury that was agitated when Louise lightly shook him. Second bit of evidence that probably stuck to the jury's minds were all of these expert witness accounts. 
thinking who these people are, like the positions that they have held, and what they were probably paid to say. Their position, their status, and this is both for the defense and the prosecution side, and I think even if this case was to have happened today, would have made a jury neglect quite a few things that just weren't done properly in this case, like the statement being recorded by that sergeant, by the police officer, or the media drama being avoided by not putting Louise on the stand, by not maybe putting the parents on the stand, by not televising the trial and exposing the parents. But again, it had to be done because the O.J. Simpson lawyer, because this would have been the biggest trial in the Boston area. And also, like, other things, like not investigating, or again, I'll eat my words up if I you know, am unable to find something like this. But Louise's previous place of work, like her previous job with the agency, that family, what did they think of Louise? And putting that into the perspective of Louise's character at that time. And on the other side of that, other nannies that worked for the Ipan family. What is their opinion of the family? How strict they were? What is their opinion of their relationship with their children and then their relationship with the nannies. I have not seen any of those angles that would then work for anybody to basically judge the character of both Evans and also of Louise. The last few bits that influenced the jury would have been Louise's own account of events, and this would be Louise's version of the events, and then the parents' one, like basically that she to try to page them, do something, maybe not do something, and then call 911, that this wasn't really her priority to try to get immediate help, and also then the perspective of the sergeant that interviewed her in the first place. And then Louise's lifestyle. Finally, the weight was also put on it. How even in the first job she had a curfew and then she decided to leave, how in this job, again, she was more focused on the night lifestyle and how the parents just coped with her, but eventually they couldn't, and how the injury had happened four days after they have imposed some rules on her. As for the closing arguments, the prosecution went for the aggressive approach that Louise couldn't stand Matthew. So she shook him, she shook him a bit more, and he wouldn't stop crying. This is when she decided to hit his head. Matthew kept crying, and what does she do? She cuts the buff short, he's still crying, and she can't stand it. He doesn't know that shaking means to stop crying, and as it's not working, she decides to slam his head down. So she grabs Maddie Eben, and she shakes him. Stop crying. Maddie even doesn't stop crying. You know why? He's eight months old, and he doesn't know that a shake means stop crying. So she shakes him a little more, and Maddie even keeps crying, he keeps fussing, and she keeps shaking, but it ain't working. She now takes him, and she slams his head down. Maddie even stop crying anymore. This is when the prosecution would mention half-truths, half-lies. She puts him in the crib, but she doesn't use the phone because she can't tell anyone what she has done. She stalls, she claps and waves, as she had described, so presumably this might be the half-truth in this story. But Matthew is not waking up, so there's only one thing left to do. Turn into an actress. 
The jury beyond the 12 jurors consisted of four others. These were the alternate jurors, and from what I understand, they're the ones that step in if the juror can't continue in the trial for any reasons like family emergency and illness, further exposure to information. And these four jurors would have worked in defense's favor because they had some science and business backgrounds. However, they were now gone. Presumably, they weren't actually needed, you know, nobody, none of the 12 original jurors messed up or had to leave for any sort of family reasons. So, defense now kind of didn't really have an in when it comes to jurors. They counted on these four and they were gone. So, what they resorted to when it comes to closing arguments was the medical evidence basis to support that she didn't do it. And then you have this defense attorney say that Louise was not a child killer, but a child lover, which... I hope nobody would say something like this in 2022. The love of children, he continues, comes right out. And it is just the misfortune that she was with him when this old injury caused him to fail. This is not a murderer. This is not a child killer. This is a child lover. You saw that come through when she testified. She can't help it. The love of children comes right out. This is an innocent person. After the evidence was heard and the closing statements were made, well, remember the first offer by the defense and then by the prosecution and the manslaughter not being on the table at all. Well, right now, the judge offered the option of manslaughter, meaning Louise had to choose all or nothing. So, let me explain that, because I was like, wait, what? This doesn't make any sense. So, one of the biggest legal decisions that Louise would make during that trial, beyond her deciding to testify on the stand, well, we know how that went, was whether or not she's going to allow the jury to consider the charges less serious than murder. So, if the jury was to believe that she had no intention of killing Matthew, she could have been found guilty of manslaughter. And in this event, Louise, you hear her, like, there is a court recording of this, she chooses the all-or-nothing verdict. So, the jury here, by the judge, by the end of the trial, was given an alternative. And this was either acquit her or find her guilty of murder. With this, Louise would take the manslaughter charge off the table for herself, probably with some counseling from the lawyers. However, it's still her saying that she agrees with the all-or-nothing verdict. And this meant that on October the 30th, after 26 hours of deliberations, jury came in with a verdict, finding Louise Woodward guilty of second-degree murder which carried a mandatory life sentence and minimum of 15 years that she had to serve. This is when she would collapse in court and she would say, I didn't do it, I didn't hurt Matty, I didn't do anything. Be 
In the article that was published after the trial, Deborah, Matthew's mom, would say that 15 years was not enough. That she feels Louise had to be accountable for what happened to Matthew. That she's barely able to put into words what it's done to her family, and that she would trade anything wonderful to have Matthew back. Louise's mom would say that they have made a horrendous mistake and that they need to put it right. And the next day, the judge, Hiller Zobel, would send Louise to prison, and he would unleash a ton of demonstrations outside of prison, but also in Louise's hometown of Elton in Cheshire in UK, where the supporters would launch an appeal for funds to help her legal battle to get Louise out, because everybody in Cheshire, well, not everybody, but like majority of people in the UK believed that this was miscarriage of justice. Even though the trial is now concluded on the 7th of November, so just a week after the verdict, the judge heard a three-part defense motion. So first, he asked that the verdict is set aside and dismissed. His second motion was to hold a new trial, and then the third one was to reduce the charge to manslaughter. This motion was the plea from Louise's defense team for the murder charge to be reduced to manslaughter, backtracking that all-or-nothing strategy. Which, I don't know how legal system works, like, how has this been just bounced back and forth completely? However, judge decided to make the historic decision and post his judgment after reviewing everything based off of this motion by the defense on the internet, which, at the time, was a big deal. Like, they had to create the website. There are articles about this website being created and, like, all of the designers, web designers on the time working on it, and I just yet again was like, what is the focus of this? What is the focus of these articles? It shouldn't be the creation of the website. It shouldn't be sensationalizing, overturning of a verdict. The focus should be Matthew, should be the person whose death led to this trial to begin with. It just, this case pissed me off on so many levels, kept me fuming on so many levels. So, on 10th of November, people just online refreshing this. The justification behind the website is that it's a British case, right? So, people have to find out about this decision in the UK. Or how about maybe just update the family and the Cheshire community doesn't have to know first thing, but apparently they did. So, the judge's decision would be to reduce Louise's second-degree murder conviction to involuntary manslaughter. Now I'm gonna read some paragraphs as to why. So, the crucial things here is that he had assessed the circumstances and the evidence, and he believed that because of that evidence, it wasn't strong enough to place Louise in prison for 15 years. He acknowledged the pain that this must have caused the Epens. However, he said that he must look at the evidence and the defendant. And saying that he had considered the matter carefully, he is convinced that the interests of justice and the cases construing it had defined them, mandating him reducing the verdict to manslaughter. He said that the defendant, so Louise, and her actions were characterized by confusion, inexperience, frustration, immaturity, and some anger, 
but not malice in the legal sense. And the malice is necessary here to support the second-degree murder charge. The judge also said, had the manslaughter option been available to the jurors, you know, had Louise not accepted the all-or-nothing verdict, they might have selected it, not out of compromise, but because that particular verdict accorded with at least one rational view of the evidence. Based off of the evidence, he said, had he allowed Louise to serve 15 years and for this to be the conviction of second-degree murder, it would have been miscarriage of justice. After reducing her conviction to manslaughter, Judge Zobel would resentence Louise to 279 days. And she had already served that amount, so she was a free woman. She left the courthouse that day with her parents supporting her and outside of the courtroom was divided. A lot of people were celebrating it, really believing in the judge's decision that this was miscarriage of justice and that he had just rectified something that would have continued in that direction. And then a lot of people believing that Louise was indeed guilty of this and that it's a guilty woman walking free. Based off of the judge's decision now to reduce the charge, the prosecution appealed and this went to the Massachusetts highest court, upholding the lower court decision. And they had a vote, so by a vote of four against three, they upheld the decision to reduce the murder conviction to manslaughter and agreed with the judge to the 279-day sentence. Justice Marshall wrote in the majority opinion, saying, We do not view the judgment against Woodward as a light matter. She stands guilty of causing an infant's death. They were critical that the judge didn't allow for the manslaughter verdict in the first case, and they also recommended that Louise never be allowed to work with children again. Just a few hours after this decision, Louise was served papers, and these were the civil suit papers filed by Matthew Ippen's parents. This would be in relation to the wrongful death of Matthew. They wanted Louise to not... They wanted to stop Louise from profiting from the case, and this would eventually be reached as a settlement, preventing Louise from profiting from ever telling her story. I found some articles that she might have profited out of some interviews that she did in the future, but I think those articles were, like, from Daily Mail, so this isn't confirmed information, and legally she wouldn't have been able to accept any money. So, after the final verdict and the Supreme Court upholding this charge, Louise would return to the UK. There again, videos of her returning and just posing with her family upon return and just smiling for the pictures. And then there is the interview upon her return that she did for Panorama, I think. It's BBC program here, or it was at least in 1998. And she talked to the journalist saying that she would like to do what any other 20-year-old had done. She wanted to get a part-time job and just describe how she wanted to do normal things. She described the manslaughter conviction as a conviction that she doesn't deserve, saying that she is still holding out hope that in time the truth will come out and that she would be cleared of any wrongdoing. She said she was happy about the settlement and that she can move on with her life and she can carry on studying, 
maintaining her innocence and deciding that she still wants to prove it. Both myself and my family are very happy about this settlement, that uh, I entered into this completely voluntarily, um, and it does seem like the right thing to do, um, to settle it once and for all, to put an end to it, so that we can all get on with our lives, and so that I can carry on studying. And I just hope that we can all learn from it, put it behind us. There might have been a clip that I inserted there from her 1998 interview, clips that I will not insert, copyright allow or not, are the ones of celebrations of Louise's release. There are there in the documentaries online, and they are mostly from the UK, people here supporting her release, believing that this was indeed miscarriage of justice, and that luckily, you know, she has been released after serving 279 days and is now out, because how much longer this could have been going for? I agree in terms of if you believe this is a miscarriage of justice, of course, it's great that she's out. It's great that this hasn't ended up being like her serving a 15 years sentence. I agree with that. I don't agree that there was cause for celebration. And yet again, I start thinking, had this case happened today? Would it happen with the same exact outcome? Would people be like running on the streets? And would it be showcased on the internet the way that it was showcased back then when literally we only could resort to news channels and representation of this on the news? Because yet again, it's just such a sensationalist, tone-deaf approach of people celebrating while Epen family didn't even have time to grieve. They have just gone through trial, and 10 days later, this decision had happened. She's back in the UK. She's giving interviews, smiling ear to ear, you know, saying how she's going to clear her name. Whereas the parents are just left with, like, we had one verdict, and now somebody had overturned it. The Supreme Court stood by them. And we have nobody to hold responsible for this. There's just no reason for celebration. So I will not be inputting any of those videos online, regardless of my opinion on Louise and regardless of my opinion on this case. With a civil case suit and the family winning it, basically not allowing Louise to make any profits from her story, I believe from what I have seen, is that anything that she publishes or any sort of money that is generated from any interview she does has to be assigned to a charity of her choice. And in this case, this is UNICEF. So she can't make sale of any of her stories. And that must have been at least a tiny bit of a victory for this family. I can't speak for them, but again, just anything for them to feel like some justice has been done, at least in the civil court, if not in the criminal one. So where does this case stand now? I'm not gonna lie to you, it doesn't have a happy ending. The story is, doesn't have a happy ending. It includes death of a child. It's a sad and really heavy case beginning to an end. 
So, in terms of Louise and where she is now, when she returned to the UK, she decided to go back to studying. She enrolled to study law at London South Bank University. She graduated with a 2-2, and then she started her career at a law firm in Manchester. But she decided that law isn't for her, so instead she went on and became a dance instructor. She dated one, like a dance instructor, for a while, from like the early reports, and paparazzi followed this woman for years, and still kind of do when it comes to, again, Daily Mail and just other tabloids. She then started dating somebody else, and right now, from the latest articles that I have seen, she is married to this guy. I'm not gonna mention his name, you can easily find it on Google. And she has kids of her own. At least one child, from what I have seen, that she gave birth to in 2014. So, she is a mother at this point in time, and she's still by tabloids, like, followed by paparazzi as she does her grocery shopping or just continues living her own life. But she has, from what I've seen, since, like, the interviews in the late 90s, really tried staying out of the public eye most of the time. Like, there are pictures that you can find of her online, as in, like, with her posing next to her husband, I think, and then some dance school pictures, but I guess any journalist who can do a bit of digging can find those off of, like, her social media profiles. What I find interesting is that she never changed her name, which I would think, like, if it were me, if I believed that I have been wrongfully convicted, that would be the first thing I'd do if I were to return to my local place. Would you? Like, what is your opinion on that? I really wanted to discuss that with somebody, and hey, now I have an outlet. Like, would you change your name? What would you do in terms of, like, protecting yourself? Especially when it comes to having children. It's not even just about you anymore. When it comes to ending this story, however, we should end it the way that it began, and that is with Matthew. Matthew's parents have since set up a foundation in order to raise awareness of the issue of shaken baby syndrome and also improved child welfare. You can find it, uh, I'll put the link in the pinned comment, it's called Matty Even Foundation, they have a website, and their mission and Matthew's legacy was to improve the safety and welfare of children by educating the public about the dangers of shaking a child and to provide assistance to victims and their families. Even the brief glance at the website would tell you that the parents still very much believed that SBS was the cause of Matthew's death here. They have the literature on SBS, like the most recent academia articles written on the subject. And I mean, even when it comes to the mission of the company, you can really hear that they still believe that this had been the cause of Matthew's death. You see it through the impact statement published on the website as well, the studies on SBS, and could you really blame them? Whatever your opinion is here, no one suffered the consequences for their seemingly healthy baby one day dying after they left for work. It's just a normal day, and then they were called into a hospital. The latest on this case came with the 60 Minutes approach, where they re-examined the case 25 years later. They had interviews with the journalists and experts from the case, and 
that's how we are here. I probably can't play 60 minutes things because they will copyright that thing right off of me. ABC Australia gives no fucks. And obviously there are multiple tabloids and paparazzi pictures of Louise and no publicity, like always, given to the Event Foundation. That's why I'll put it in a pinned comment. They have the donation tab. I'll put that one directly in the comment if you want to donate. Again, depending on your belief, when it comes to the shaken baby syndrome, I understand you might not want to because it might go into supporting that ideology. But again, if you can donate anything, it still goes towards Matthew's legacy. It still goes towards this family. That is the case of Matthew Epen and the case of Louise Woodward. And as for my opinion, I have been changing it every single day of the week. And I summarized this here because I just, I was like, no, make your own decision based off of everything you've seen, based off of the script that you have written. And depending on the material I watched and read, I may just tell you what my opinion is in the end. So from what I watched, hearing the bits of the 911 call, Louise stuck to her story. She definitely acted in a most bizarre way. It made me die inside so many times. She had bizarre displays of nervousness, but I would have had reasonable doubt on that jury. I would have had reasonable doubt having, you know, a glance through a couple of articles on SBS and just how it was going, like how many wrongful convictions it can lead to. I would have had doubts into the prosecution's version of events and the hypotheticals of it. However, I have to admit that both the defense team and the prosecution team could have done a much better job at convincing me. Maybe had a much better job been done, I wouldn't have had reasonable doubt. Maybe those jurors wouldn't have had either. It could have been easily avoided by the sergeant recording the interview, then having that to play in the court, then paramedics testifying. What was Louise like? Was she actually trying to do CPR? Was she actually trying to help Mattie out? Us learning about previous nannies, Louise's previous behavior on the other job, all of that that would have gone either into her favor or against it. We just had like glimpses into her character, insights into like what she might or might not have done on that day, but not enough people really testifying to support one or the other. You just don't have enough information, or at least not available online anymore. However, I also noticed that what was making me change my decision every day and lean more into, well, the jury was right in the first place. Maybe I would have caved in and said yes to second-degree murder charge, is my own bias. Basically, when I look into these cases, I do look into the background and then the aftermath of it, and it just seemed like she had strange portrayal in the courtroom, maybe believing that she was the actress and into that side of the story, her maybe doing everything for show, you can kind of believe it when you see that display of behavior. And even afterwards, the few interviews that I could find, it was never about Matthew, it was never about the parents. It was always about Louise. 
She could have changed her name, made sure that any publicity, any interviews that she did, she recognized that, you know, this was about Matthew in the end and there is nothing to celebrate. She could have advised people, do not celebrate my victory. Like, yes, it had happened, I am free now, but this case, to its core, is about a child. So here I have to question my own biases and whether I think that what someone does in their future, in the aftermath of events, showcases their character better than what they did or might not have done on the day of. However, also then you have to note that she has been staying out of the public eye for most of her time out. Maybe you wouldn't change your name. Maybe that would sound like you feel like you were guilty. Maybe you don't agree with me on that. Like, you know, who knows what your reaction would be if you were in this situation and you f you were really innocent and you knew you were innocent and you were like, I have nothing to hide. I don't want to hide who I am. I don't want to hide the fact that I have children now. If people are going to find that information, they will. But this is where I hand it over to you in a very controversial case that we'll have people in the comments probably divided. Do you think there was enough evidence to support this or was this one of those battles of persecution versus defense and the arguments of the different experts that yet again you have to think have probably even at the time been paid heftily. So let me know what you think about this one and I am going to try to find yet another case of suspicious deaths for you that isn't like heavily publicized because I've covered Marilyn extremely heavily publicized. This one as well, I just wanted to cover it re-examining the evidence and the court stuff that I have seen because I didn't know about this case before sitting down to research it and I was like, okay, this is heavy and controversial. And if you can, check the pinned comment for Matty's foundation, even if it's just giving them clicks and reading through the story on Matty, the impact statement is on the website that I have read from, even if it is just informing yourself more on SBS in order to make a more informed, intelligent opinion on it, and let me know what your theories are but also be respectful to one another in the comments. And as always, any comments against Ethan family, against Matty's family, block, immediate block. It's how you guarantee it on here. I am still very much small, even though monetized now, almost. Very much small. And I will have the time. I will always have the time to block anybody who speaks against Ethan's families, always and forever. And uh, that is my promise to you. I'm gonna go and edit this now. Now, actually, I'm gonna go have fuel. Pret coffee subscription. Not a bad idea, apparently, here in London. If you're in London, outside London, there must be. Please don't make a comment on that. People are gonna be so confused if you answer my last question. It's like, are Pret's outside London? Just Google it, Maya. I'll Google it. I'll get over it. But Pret's coffee, this is a subscription. Not the best, not, not the worst idea. <laughs> How will you ever get ads? <laughs> You will forget to edit it later. It's like not the best idea ever. And it's like then it's it's made to the final cut. They're like, no, you're not getting any money. When are you gonna get sponsorships? Never shut it. Pret's coffee. And then editing this and then waking up to go to work tomorrow. <laughs> Hustle. 
let me know what you think about this one and uh, goodbye. Have I stopped sweating throughout like a few hours at least? No, no, you haven't. You just sweat. My out, my out, my out.